Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Patients discharged from the hospital after a first psychotic episode may turn to their general practitioner for care. And Norton and colleagues think this scenario is even more likely after a short duration of stay in the hospital. The authors contacted the general practitioners of patients enrolled in the French STEP project six months after their discharge. This cohort included patients hospitalized for a first psychotic episode in a psychiatric hospital in France between February 2008 and March 2009. Seventy-nine patients were able to give the name of a general practitioner who they had registered with or previously visited. Sixty-four of these physicians returned the questionnaire for a response rate of 81%. The questionnaires indicated that only 18% of the physicians had been informed by the hospital of their patient's hospital stay, and in other cases, they were informed by family and friends. 78% of the general practitioners had seen their patient at least once since discharge. Patients who had a short hospital stay of 35 days or less were more likely to have visited their general practitioner for psychiatric symptoms. When told of the hospital stay, physicians were better informed with regard to diagnosis, date of discharge, the name of the psychiatrist, treatment, and community follow-up for short-stay patients. The authors conclude that general practitioners are weakly involved in the follow-up care of first-episode psychotic patients after hospital discharge, irrespective of the patient's length of stay. They do have a role to play, however, in coordinating and providing care for somatic health problems as well as psychiatric problems, especially in the case of early discharge. Moving on, as the authors of the next study point out, international differences in disease prevalence rates are often reported and thought to reflect variations in lifestyles, genetics, or culture. However, these differences may also be produced by variations among health care systems. Lincoln colleagues investigated variations among the health care systems of Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States in the diagnosis and management of a patient with symptoms indicative of depression. 384 randomly selected primary care physicians viewed a video vignette of a patient presenting with symptoms suggestive of depression. Under the supervision of experienced clinicians, professional actors were trained to realistically portray patients who presented with seven symptoms of depression, sleep disturbance, decreased interest, guilt, diminished energy, impaired concentration, poor appetite, and psychomotor agitation or retardation. 90% of physicians listed depression as one of their diagnoses, but German physicians were more likely to diagnose depression in women, while British and American physicians were more likely to diagnose depression in men. American physicians were almost twice as likely to prescribe an antidepressant as British physicians. 
The results show that primary care physicians in different countries diagnose depression differently depending on the patient's gender. There are also significant differences between countries in the management of a patient with symptoms suggestive of depression. Next, post-traumatic stress disorder is a signature injury of modern wars, and for returning soldiers, PTSD symptoms are more likely to present later during rescreening. For this reason, guidelines now recommend screening in primary care and mental health settings outside the military. The objectives of the next study were to test how clinicians diagnose PTSD in their own practices and to assess barriers to care. A 25-question Internet survey was based on two typical patients with symptoms of PTSD, a returning soldier and a police officer. Primary care and mental health provider responses to the survey were scored against the current guidelines. PTSD diagnosis questions were correctly answered by only 51% of primary care and 56% of mental health care providers. Real-world screening and referral also fell short of guidelines. Only 24% of primary care and 48% of mental health providers have a system to routinely screen for PTSD. For follow-up care, only 25% of primary care providers have access to referral to mental health services. Barriers to care are common, and the largest barrier that clinicians report is stigma of mental health care. The survey showed gaps in PTSD diagnosis and referral for returning soldiers who seek care outside the military setting. Short screening tools, such as the primary care PTSD screen, can be used to improve diagnosis. And, most importantly, stigma of mental health care can be addressed to help remove barriers to care. Moving on, decision-making is a key task of all mental health professionals. So, what factors affect how decisions are made? A group from England looked at this question with regard to how depression and anxiety are treated in secondary care mental health services. In particular, they focused on the decision to use evidence-based treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy. The analysis used data from an audit on implementation of the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellent Guidelines for Depression and Anxiety Disorders. A classification tree analysis was done to find out how accurately treatment decisions could be predicted. The predictor variables in the study were presenting problem, risk, comorbid problems, social problems, and previous history of psychiatric treatment. The study found that treatment decisions could be predicted more accurately for anxiety than for depression. For anxiety, decision-making was accurately predicted 93% of the time. For depression, decision-making was accurately predicted only 55% of the time. For anxiety disorders, the presence or absence of social problems was a good predictor of treatment decisions. Anxious patients who did not have social problems were much more likely to receive evidence-based treatments than those who did have social problems. For depression, risk 
was the best predictor of treatment decisions, but none of the variables gave a very accurate prediction. Treatment decisions for depression were more idiosyncratic. This might be due to the complex nature of depressive problems. Next, the practice of drug testing in the workplace has been adopted for U.S. federal government employees, and many state and local governments and private businesses have followed suit. However, a parallel industry dedicated to subverting the results of urine drug testing has emerged with little or no regulation. The authors of the next article present the case of a 19-year-old man who developed psychosis after the use of a detoxification kit. They also review the existing literature on the techniques, risks, and regulations associated with the use of drug test tampering kits. The three commonly used tampering techniques are in vivo adulteration, urine substitution, and in vitro adulteration. A review of the literature regarding the risks involving the use of tampering kits yielded no results. In 1986, an executive order was issued requiring all federal employees to refrain from illicit drug use, and the 1988 Drug-Free Workplace Act precipitated the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration guidelines and their subsequent revisions. Recently, many states have made regulatory efforts to bring drug tests to frauding under the ambit of law. The authors note that clinicians should be aware of the tampering techniques and the possibility of false negative urine drug tests. Detoxification kits must be included in the differential for causation of medical and or psychiatric symptoms, and clinicians should contact the laboratory in case of a negative urine drug specimen with a high index of suspicion of drug use. The manufacturer's sale and use of these drug test tampering products have little or no regulation by state or federal authorities, making them potentially dangerous and imposing new challenges in testing for abused drugs. The extent of use of these products and techniques is not known at this time and is an area that warrants further research. Now, in the next article, the authors summarize the peer-reviewed literature on patient preferences for depression treatments and the impact of these preferences on treatment outcomes. Fifteen articles contain unique information on patient preferences for depression treatments and their impact on depression-related outcomes. The patient preference literature includes a limited number of studies examining the impact of patient preferences on outcomes, such as depression severity, treatment initiation, persistence and adherence, treatment engagement, the development of the therapeutic alliance, and health-related quality of life. The majority of research has focused on comparisons of psychotherapy versus pharmacotherapy, with some limited information regarding comparisons of psychotherapies. Results from the research to date suggest that the impact of patient treatment preferences is mixed. The results also indicate that patient preferences have minimal impact on depression severity outcomes within the context of controlled trials but may be more strongly associated with other outcomes, such as entry into treatment and development of the therapeutic alliance.
However, it is important to note that the literature is limited in that the impact of patient preferences has been examined only through secondary analyses, and there have been few studies designed explicitly to examine the impact of patient preferences, particularly outside the context of controlled clinical trials. The authors conclude that despite treatment guidelines and suggestions in the literature, the value of and appropriate procedures for considering patient preferences in real-world treatment decisions deserve more careful study. Next, as Dr. Fetter reminds us, medical and psychiatric physicians provide care for patients in hospitals, prisons, emergency rooms, group homes, schools, and other facilities where violence occurs. In his article, the author describes common patterns of violence across psychiatric diagnoses and considers management implications. The common patterns of violence include defensive, dominance-defining, impulsive, and calculated. These violence types cut across psychiatric diagnosis, such that many units that specialize in a single disorder such as schizophrenia might find a variety of these types of violence represented. Some institutions may find it useful to identify patients with dominance behaviors and keep them separated on different units. The author concludes that recognition of different patterns of violence has implications for management of individual patients and the milieu. Careful observation of behavior around aggressive episodes can lead to improvements in management that may decrease staff and patient injuries, decrease length of stay, or permit progression to less restrictive settings. Moving on. The authors of this next study set out to determine and compare rates of homotypic continuity of childhood onset and adolescent onset depression into adulthood. They conducted a naturalistic, prospective cohort study of children and adolescents receiving psychiatric care at all community mental health centers in Madrid, Spain, from January 1986 to December 2007. Data were obtained from a regional registry in which all psychiatric visits to public mental health centers are recorded. Patients received their first diagnosis of an ICD-10 depressive disorder between 6 and 17 years of age and were at least 20 years old at the time of their last visit. Subjects whose first diagnosis was in childhood and subjects whose first diagnosis was in adolescence were compared in terms of demographic characteristics, psychiatric comorbidity, and rates of homotypic continuity in adulthood. The results show that 528 patients with depressive disorder met inclusion criteria. The depressed adolescent group had a higher proportion of girls compared to the depressed child group, but did not differ on other demographic or clinical variables. Most subjects who later received treatment in adult mental health facilities continued to be diagnosed with a depressive disorder. High rates of anxiety disorders, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, and psychotic disorders in adulthood were observed among subjects from both groups. 
the absence of psychiatric comorbidity prior to age 18 years was associated with homotypic continuity of depressive disorders into adulthood. The authors conclude that onset of depressive disorders usually occurs during adolescence or early adulthood. Adolescents with depressive disorders who are evaluated in community mental health centers show a high level of homotypic continuity in adulthood, and both children and adolescents with depressive disorders are at risk for other psychiatric disorders in adulthood. Next, we move to the diagnosis and management of dementia with Lewy bodies. This article provides guidance for primary care providers in distinguishing dementia with Lewy bodies from Alzheimer's disease and from Parkinson's disease with dementia. As the authors point out, differentiating these entities has important treatment implications. A PubMed search was undertaken using the keywords Lewy body, dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and Lewy body disease. There were no date restrictions, and only English language articles were reviewed. A total of 62 articles were included in the review. Results show that dementia with Lewy bodies is the second leading cause of dementia after Alzheimer's disease. The core symptoms of dementia with Lewy bodies, including cognitive fluctuations, visual hallucinations, and Parkinsonism, may not always be present as a triad, and clinicians may be unaware of associated symptoms. Thus, this diagnosis is frequently missed by primary care providers. Often, dementia with Lewy bodies is misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, or a primary psychiatric illness. Treatments for dementia with Lewy bodies include cholinesterase inhibitors and N-methyl-D-aspartate antagonists. Antipsychotics should be avoided or used with caution. The authors conclude that dementia with Lewy bodies is an often misdiagnosis and symptoms are often attributed to other disorders. A high clinical suspicion is helpful in accurate diagnosis and presence of any core symptoms should initiate clinical suspicion of dementia with Lewy bodies. Next, we invite you to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of the Companion, we highlight the case of a 70-year-old man who presented with cognitive impairment, including difficulties with activities of daily living, such as handling finances and driving, and personality changes, such as excessive energy and inappropriate social behavior. Does the patient meet criteria for dementia? Does he have mild cognitive impairment or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should his treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this exciting offering. Moving on, as our country ages and we get older, it seems that there are more and more people living with a chronic illness. 
An effective strategy for thinking about life events would allow the chronically ill patient to focus on his or her disease and its treatment only just prior to a medical appointment. It would be reasonable also for him or her to consider the illness whenever symptoms appear that require interpretation or action. It would be ideal, however, for the patient to forget about the illness for the remainder of his or her time. Unfortunately, a more usual approach is for the patient to think about the illness on multiple occasions and to spend time asking a number of what-ifs related to its course and effects, leading to a disruptive life experience in which the illness is the patient's constant focus. In the case presentation from this issue's Psychotherapy Casebook, read how a medical team helped a patient with Lou Gehrig's disease develop a new life plan. A brief intervention helped the patient and his wife make a successful adaptation to a demanding illness. Next, we highlight the recent updates to diagnostic guidelines for Alzheimer's disease. Recently, an expert panel charged by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, National Institute on Aging, and the Alzheimer's Association proposed revised clinical diagnostic criteria for dementia due to Alzheimer's disease for the first time since 1984, as well as new research criteria for the pre-dementia stages of Alzheimer's disease. The changes reflect new scientific understanding that Alzheimer's disease has a lengthy pre-dementia prodrome, as well as new research information about the potential significance of biomarkers. In this issue, read the update provided by Yari and colleagues to learn more about the new guidelines on dementia and mild cognitive impairment in Alzheimer's disease. Finally, have you ever wondered why a patient fails to seek medical attention for chest pain that may herald a myocardial infarction? Have you ever been puzzled by which interventions will effectively overcome a patient's denial? If you have, then the latest case vignette in our popular series, Rounds in the General Hospital from Dr. Theodore Stern and colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital, should prove useful when managing the care of such patients. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including a variety of letters, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.